This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today I am very thrilled to have with me Dr. Tom Carpenter, who's a professor emeritus from the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and really one of the preeminent figures in math education, and somebody who I read a lot of when I was in grad school, and he partially defined what it means to do math education research in my mind because of that reading. So I'm thrilled to be here to talk with you about your career and your thoughts on math education. So thanks for being here, Dr. Carpenter. It's my pleasure. So I want to start back at the very beginning and where you even had the idea and the inspiration to go into mathematics education as a field, whether that be teaching or scholarship. Well, I I first entered mathematics education as a high school teacher. Uh, I taught high school mathematics for four years, taught in an inner city school, sort of, I was teaching at a predominantly African-American school, starting in the We Shall Overcome days and ending up in the Black Power days. Mm. And so it was an interesting experience that has stuck with me and sort of returned to it the last 10 or 15 years, working mm-hmm. at the University and Mathematics Education Center. And as you were teaching, what was it that pulled you then into higher education with math education? Well, back in those days... That was back in the the old new math days. Mm. And one of the things they had is that they had National Science Foundation academic year scholarships. And so I went to an academic year scholarship to get a master's degree in mathematics. And then from there, there was a federally funded fellowship program at the University of Wisconsin for PhD. And I went on to that. when I first started, I was sort of wasn't quite sure whether I wanted to be in mathematics education or in mathematics. But clearly, I made the choice for mathematics education. Mm-hmm. So, what was that like in your doctoral studies? Um, who were you working with there, and just what were some of your experiences when you were basically deciding that math education was going to be this field for you, and you were going to go into this higher higher ed and academia? Tom Romberg was my advisor, and uh, I got very intrigued with the uh, studying children's mathematical thinking. This was mm-hmm. the heyday of PSJ, mm-hmm. uh, if you recall, this was 1968 through 1971. PSJ sort of defined the study of children's thinking, and uh, the work seemed to have some real implications for, for how you thought about elementary mathematics. And Tom Romberg was working on an elementary mathematics program, developing mathematical processes at that time. So it, there was access to children to study and so forth. And that's what kind of led me in, in that direction. It was an interesting time. We, we had an interesting group of people there, real community that I maintained contact with ever since. Uh, people like Doug Grouse, very mm-hmm. Doug McLeod, who I've worked with and stayed in touch with. 
Yeah, and a group that into the 70s really started to, I would say, kind of found the modern math education field. Did you have the sense with that group that you were kind of at the front end of what would become its own sort of sub-discipline? Uh, no, it's hard, <laughs> hard, hard to uh, see that when you're in the process of that. Mm-hmm. You sort of look at, at yourself as really kind of a novice. So no, I don't. I don't think we we saw that mm-hmm. kind of growth that has happened in mathematics education. I didn't in any case. Right. So you really bring a breadth of experiences. You had the high school teaching. You had interest in mathematics itself. But now you're really working a lot more at the elementary level. So I'm wondering how you balanced all of those factors as you went into the beginning of your career. So I know you mentioned you had the access to elementary levels. Did you just become really intrigued with questions about elementary student learning or teaching at that level? Um, Or how did you kind of decide what to pursue in the early phases of your career? Well, as with a lot of things, I sort of stumbled on on what seemed to me at the time an interesting question based on Piaget's work, mm-hmm. in, in which I used uh, similar kinds of tasks, but studying young children's understanding of measurement. And uh, I th- thought the interesting thing about Piaget's work is that it sort of combined a combination of thinking carefully about the mathematics, uh, even at the elementary level, uh, and thinking about children's thinking. Hmm. And so it wasn't the substance of the mathematics became a very sort of important part of the study. And that's that's continued throughout my career, is rather than looking at sort of general principles, uh, it's always embedded in a context particular mathematics. Mm. I'm also, I'm in my early stages of my career at this point and still, you know, making my way forward in terms of research trajectory. And I'm wondering if you have advice for people who are in early phases of their career, would the advice be like you said, to kind of find an interesting intellectual question and pursue that? Or what, what advice would you share? Well, I think you want to do something that you're really committed to. That's really interesting. It just isn't isn't worth spending a lot of time on something that you don't really care about and that, that doesn't excite you. Mm-hmm. The other thing that always sort of drove me is that the nice part about about the work that I did for me was that I I thought what I was was emerging out of it was real. Mm-hmm. I could really make pretty strong statements about what kids did. That was a powerful motivation. Mm-hmm. It kept you going because as you were working, you felt like you were really finding something that mattered or that made sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there are a lot of studies, you know, that you can do where you you find marginally significant results. The, the work I was doing, the kind of responses I was getting were very robust. You could really predict what kids were going to do and use the research to predict what other kids would do. Mm. That was pretty motivating. And, you know, some work at the time where people were looking for statistically significant differences mm-hmm. in treatments that may or may, you may or may not really feel that you have those differences. 
you, you can't necessarily see the, the changes as clearly as you could in the work that I was doing. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to think about a different sort of predictive power. I mean, a lot of times you look for large statistical power and significance because it has predictive value in a general sense, but the way that you're speaking, you had very clear predictive sense because by looking at students, you really knew what to expect from other students, and it did seem to generalize in the sense that you knew that students were going to try probably this, or they might try that, or if you looked at a group of students, you're probably going to see X, Y, and Z sort of approach. Yeah. So that's a nice a nice predictive power, but it's more of a practical predictive power of, like, for instance, a teacher being able to anticipate what their students might do. Yeah. So that leads us, at least in my mind, it leads us to the door of cognitively guided instruction. So this was, you know, a big project that made a lot of impact in the research community, but also the practical community in the 1980s and onward. What would you say was the foundation and what was your thinking going into the cognitively guided instruction project? Take us back to that time when CGI was just getting started. Well, I'd been involved for the preceding 10 years in studying addition and subtraction, mm-hmm. development of addition and subtraction uh, ideas in young children. We'd done a three-year longitudinal study and kind of a bunch of follow-up work on that and had these very compelling pre- predictive models of how children solve problems. You know, it really, really is quite amazing when you uh, look back on it that children were, were so consistent in how they solved these addition and subtraction problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started out, we had no idea we were going to get that, that kind of, of power. And we had all sorts of alternative things that we, w- we expected some children might do one thing and some might do another. But it, it turned out that sort of this, this sort of central idea of children modeling problem structure was sort of the overall story mm-hmm. was in- incredibly uh, consistent across children. We did studies in other countries, different groups within the United States, and uh, found consistent results and, and found huge consistencies within. So at that point in time, there was this research on children's thinking It was sort of done independent of instruction. When I did those initial studies, we really didn't look at instruction. Now, we were really interviewing children and seeing how they solved problems. Mm -hmm. And around that time, Tom Romberg and I wrote a chapter in the Handbook of Research on Teaching uh, called Two Disciplines of Scientific Inquiry, Research on Teaching, mathematics and research on learning of mathematics. And it's sort of built on an idea that researchers studying teaching and researchers studying learning were using entirely separate paradigms and Mm -hmm. where the twain should meet. So I'd been studying this work on children's thinking, which seemed to me it ought to have a lot of implications for teaching. Mm-hmm. I had not really <laughs> pursued those. Hmm. And so Liz Fenema uh, kept saying, well, you know, you're in a department of curriculum instruction. You're not in a department of ed psych. <laughs> what, what good is all this stuff anyway? So we, uh, along with Penny Peterson, 
sat down and started to talk about these ideas, uh, it seemed to me that, that uh, given the sort of the power of prediction of what children were doing and the fact that children were, were doing incredible things, seemed much more advanced than many of the things that were covered in the curriculum, which should have some, some implications. So when we started CGI, that was sort of the idea to try and blend this research on teaching and research on learning and yeah. see what we could do to really to see how teachers would would use this knowledge. We didn't know how they would use it. Sort of the question is, well, if we're going to find out what the implications of this are, let's share this knowledge with teachers and let's see what they do if, if they have mm-hmm. this knowledge. I think there's some ideas about empowerment that are parallel with the students and then with the teachers. So with the students, you give them these problems and you see how they approach them and then people can be impressed and surprised that students could be pretty creative and they could use the structure of the problem to solve mathematical situations that they hadn't explicitly been taught how to solve. That's where you were saying, like, students were able to do things beyond the curriculum because if you give them the problem and give them a context, they can work through it. And then when you see what they do, it's very powerful. Then with the teachers, you can share with the teachers this framework for how students approach problems and how they can solve different types of problems in the elementary grades. And now you can watch the teachers and see what they do with that knowledge. How do the teachers um, bring it into the classroom? How does it change their awareness or their thinking about their expectations for students? And so, again, the teachers might have done better, more inspiring things with the knowledge than you might have predicted, or they, they might do something with the student research that the researchers themselves might not have, you know, thought of ahead of time. Like if you had come in and prescribed instructional strategies based on your interpretation of the research, the student learning research, that might have kind of put some walls up of the possibilities, whereas if you give it to the teachers, they might do things even outside of preconceived walls. And so it seems empowering for the teachers to let them take that knowledge and then use it in their practice and use it in their own context, use it in the way that they're thinking about their students. Uh, Yeah, very much the case. Uh, If if we had tried to tell teachers how they should use this knowledge, we would have have been entirely off base and seen something entirely different. One of the things about the, the characteristics of the knowledge that we shared with them is that it's incredibly robust uh, that you give kids these problems and they do exactly what we predict them to do. They don't all solve them the same way, but but they're they're bounded in particular ways and you really have a a good idea what's going to happen. This first study we did, one of the things we told the teachers about these problems and showed them videotapes of kids solving them and you know, got them to understand how how kids would solve them, or how we had seen kids solve them. Mm-hmm. And then we <laughs> gave the teachers, and these are experienced teachers, you know, some of them have been teaching for 30 years mm-hmm. more, and we then asked the teachers to go out and interview kids. <laughs> and <laughs> these experienced teachers were incredibly nervous about going and interviewing individual kids. Hmm. Really, really kind of amusing. But they they went out and interviewed the kids, and that just was sort of night and day. And they came back just 
incredibly enthusiastic. I said, mm. oh my gosh, uh, you know, those kids do it when I ask those questions too. Mm. You know, I, I'm not sure that any knowledge about children's would necessarily have the same power. Mm-hmm. The uh, fact that the predictive ability of, of the, the framework mm-hmm. had a huge effect. And I think what you were looking at is very relevant to the teacher's life, too. I mean, the the operations and the way that students approach problems is very central to the daily teaching of the elementary teachers, I would imagine. And so when they're doing it, they probably are part of the reason they're very excited is because they can see that this is really going to matter for their day-to-day teaching. Yeah. But the the other thing, sort of back to a point that you raised, empowering the teachers to, to make their own decisions, we didn't have a clear vision about exactly how teachers might use this. Uh, there, there's been sort of a, quote, typical CGI classroom has emerged where teachers pose problems and give children opportunity to solve them in a variety of ways and share results with one another. But, you know, there are a whole bunch of issues. We're dealing with word problems for children. Mm. And these are first grade children that we started with uh, who have at best limited reading ability. And Mm -hmm. so sort of how are you going to get around that problem? And the teachers had no trouble with that. You know, they they figured that out and, and uh, were able to read the problems to the kids and uh, solve them. We also weren't sure to what degree uh, teachers might use might provide more direct instruction to the kids about things, or mm-hmm. or use use the CGI framework to uh, group kids. Mm. And it turned out that that. That wasn't where the teachers went, and you know it was, it was very interesting. Mm-hmm. My guest is Tom Carpenter, uh, an NCTM Lifetime Achievement Award winner, and we're talking about his work on CGI. Having the you know luxury of hindsight, I wanted to also ask you about what you saw as the lasting impacts of CGI, the decades after the main work of CGI, where you saw it going, and what influence you saw it have ripple through the field of math education. Well, I don't know if I'm the best one to judge that. Uh, <laughs> you like like to see things have an effect. One of the interesting things, as, as I indicated, uh, the original CGI work was really a, a work on trying to find out how teachers would use this knowledge. And we had to share the knowledge with teachers, so we had set up a professional development program for the study, but we had no real anticipation that we would this, this would become a professional development program mm. that we would follow through with. And in fact, uh, some of the teachers in our original cohort were the ones who, who really started to move this out and, and expand it, and, and they be, they became leaders of uh, CGI professional development. Mm-hmm. And another way that it expanded is some people took it forward in the curriculum toward later grade levels, so getting into early algebra and trying to build on research of students' thinking to understand how students approach early algebra concepts mm-hmm. and then do a CGI similar type of model of trying to 
share that information with teachers. So was that another avenue in which it sort of rippled forward? Uh, yeah. But I, I think one of the things is that we, we had a number of graduate students uh, as part of the program. They would go out and, and continue the work in their, uh, in their communities and, and create new communities uh, in, in which it would work. People like Randy Phillip, Megan Frankie, Susan Empson, uh, Vicki Jacobson. I'm, I'm forgetting a lot of others. But, so it, it sort of expanded out from there. And mm-hmm. we, we did try and talk about the ideas. And in some cases, other people found the ideas compelling, and it expanded. Mm-hmm. I also want to move on to another um, big piece of work that you had. You led the National Center for Improving Student Learning and Achievement in Mathematics and Science for many years. So I was wondering just what were some of the highlights from that National Center and the work that you did there? Well, I think the, the big focus of that center was uh, bringing together research on teaching and research on learning. I commented earlier that the beginning of my career and for the first 10 years or so of it, uh, research on teaching and research on learning were pretty much separate, and they had quite different models. A lot of the research on teaching was a, pretty much a behavioral model, looked at ways of, of trying to engage teachers in using certain behaviors, mm-hmm. use sort of standard uh, achievement measures, didn't really get into uh, the, the kind of changes we were looking at in, in children's thinking. And so a big part of the center uh, was to try and, and bring those ideas together. And most of the participants in the center were studying, sort of concurrently studying mathematical thinking and instruction. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned at the beginning of the interview about your career sort of being bookended by attention to diversity, and you started teaching in an urban setting with a lot of African-American students. And at the end of your career, you were the director of the DIME Center, which is Diversity in Mathematics Education, uh, Center for Learning and Teaching. So again, we have learning and teaching together, so I think that's a clear thread that you've had throughout your work. But the DIME Center, you, you took a specific focus on diversity, and so... What are some of your main ideas and main experiences from the Dime Center that you want to share with us? Uh, well, that, that was a very interesting thing, is that I had been committed to issues of uh, equity and social justice throughout my career. And some of the studies we had done in, in the original CGI work and even in the back when we were studying individual children, addressed issues of equity and social justice. But the Dime Center made it the central theme, the the students in the Dime Center. So I uh, wound up directing dissertations uh, in fields that that diverged quite a bit from from the work that I had initially been doing that looked directly at issues of social justice and, and equity as the the sort of central thing. And the work of that center was recognized by AERA Division G with the Henry Truba Award um, for transforming social context. So I think it is great to take those issues and put them at the center of the work and also to expand out beyond math education and to really look at some interdisciplinary work taking on those issues. Yeah, we did a lot the same thing with the 
diversity center uh, in giving a lot of latitude to the participants in the center, uh, the, the graduate students who were, came and you know, really, really were able to create a community in which they took the lead. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's nice. I mean, I think it's you have some good examples of the model of how research can work on problems of practice, but do it in a way that's not really ivory tower. Do it in a way that's more... The research community has some ideas to share, but the practitioners really have the expertise on the ground, and so let's draw on each other's strengths rather than a one-way pipeline of the research community trying to just send down some behavioral prescriptions to the practitioners. Yeah, I think that's very much the case. Well articulated. (laughs) Thank you. So while I have you here, I do want to pick your brain a little bit about where things are going in the future. So do you have any suggestions or recommendations for the mathematics education community about where our research priority should be into the next five years or the next ten years? Do you have any sort of directions that you would point us toward? Well, I think the the biggest problem problems uh, confronting education in general are, are the issues of, of equity and social justice and I, I think the more that we can try and address those issues, the better off we we can address the most critical problems facing mm-hmm. the country. Now, that being said, a lot of the issues of equity and social justice uh, go beyond the bo- boundaries of the school. Mm-hmm. We need to bring pressure to bear to address uh, the issues of housing all sorts of other inequities that exist in in students' lives. Mm -hmm. My guest is Tom Carpenter, Professor Emeritus from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And Dr. Carpenter, uh, thank you so much for being here. I have one final question that I ask my guests, and I'm very curious what your answer might be. If you hadn't spent your career in mathematics education, is there something else you could have imagined yourself doing? And this can be fantastical or it can be Slightly realistic, or whatever you choose. Yeah, I'd like to be a point guard for the Warriors. <laughs> That'd be a nice job right about now. Uh, no, you know, it, it it really worked out. I I can't imagine anything that would have been a career that I would have enjoyed more, or would have been better adapted to my abilities. You know, I I might have I might have stayed teaching at the high school level, or or become a university mathematics teacher, but I, I think what I what I chose uh, was a great choice for me, and it's been a, a wonderful 40-odd years. Well, thanks so much for sitting down and speaking with us about those 40-odd years. We appreciate hearing from you very much. Okay. Thank you for having me.